A brief history of Mesopotamia, the third dynasty of Ur, otherwise known as the Neo-Sumerian Empire, its rise and fall. The third dynasty of Ur, or Ur III as it's sometimes known, became the foundation for the emerging Sumerian Empire, which ruled the region between 2112 and 2004 BCE. The empire, often referred to, as I said before, Neo-Sumerian Empire, not only signified the restoration of power of the old base of Sumer, nor even a golden age for the great city of Ur. The Neo-Sumerian Empire was one of the most unusual and surprising forms of administration in the ancient world. A great experiment of sorts had more in common with the Soviet Union than it did with the Akkadians preceding it. Founded by Ur-Namu, the nephew of Utu-Hagal, Urthri controlled much of the Mesopotamian plain which form, with formerly independent cities becoming provinces or vassal territories paying taxes to the central administration. The Sumerian language once again became the language of administration, although Akkadian remains spoken on the streets of many cities. The scholarship on the Neo-Sumerian period has often been believed that the administration was entirely obsessed with bureaucracy but this is largely to do with the locations of the archaeological excavations. Most of the digs have been pursuing rare and valuable items, such as temples and palaces, have been prioritized over other parts of cities. As such, as it had an impact on the portrayal of the empire, with ordinary, everyday life remaining unreflected. That said, the Neo-Sumerian Empire did indeed have an unusual, perhaps even radical, perspective on bureaucracy, which is even more surprising when you consider their place in history. Long before even early biblical tales of the origins of Western society in Greece and Rome, the structure of the society of Neo-Sumerian Empire was remarkably similar to the Soviet Union and even Maoist communism. It differed in many respects, especially regarding religious belief, but it was defined by the totalitarian ideologies used to justify economic and social arrangements. Put simply, the state took from each according to ability and gave to each in accordance with need. Although, as usual, the need and ability had to be decided by somebody, and more often than not, one party or another would find themselves benefiting above the others. The individual had no voice. The society was structured not around citizens, but groups or small communities largely defined by ethnicity, family, or belief. The state owned all land and means of production, and each individual was obliged to serve the state for at least part of the year. Society revolved around the concept of bala, whereby each province or city would pay a certain amount in grain or livestock to a central resource pool, from which each could, have, could then draw as needed. The amount contributed varied, but sometimes could exceed 50% of the province's production for a year. In fact, the Neo-Sumerians went even farther than the Communists may have by keeping detailed records of each and every individual's contribution and rewards. Those of the lower classes, such as slaves and workers of little skill, were considered to be state property. They had no purpose aside from providing labor to the city each and every day. Supervisors, on the other hand, had it very differently. Their performance was measured with extreme detail and then scrutinized intensely. Their goods, materials, and labors, including metal, wool, and grains, all provided by the state, were measured and converted into equivalent work days. This was contrasted with the credit, namely the production output, to be the quality of the flour, the number of textiles woven, 
as it was different depending upon the team. Again, an equivalent of in workers' days was calculated, even making room for time spent on side projects such as repairs or urgent external jobs, as well as the workers' yearly leave, averaging around 35 days a year for men and 55 days for women. The expected production was much higher than was possible. The surpluses were extremely rare. Many supervisors would end up with considerable debts to the state, which could have been called in at any point. If a supervisor was to die before paying up, his debts would fall on his descendants, who may have been required to sell themselves into slavery to raise the funds. Another element of the Neo-Sumerian administration that is particularly interesting is their use of invalids and the disabled. Everybody had their place in society, filling some role or another. This may have simply been an attempt to exploit every last possible means of production, but may also have been intended to offer a place in society for those who could not hope to otherwise compete or succeed. The new style of government worked well for time. Uniformity was established across the empire. National curriculum was designated for scribal training. Weights, measures were standardized and remained so for the rest of Mesopotamian history. Even an imperial calendar was, was created using all the administrative documents aside from purely local matters. Even early law codes were created, listing various crimes and disagreements and resolutions or punishments for each. The capital crimes were listed as murder, robbery, the deflowering of another man's wife, or adultery when committed by a woman, whereas other crimes had a prescribed quantity of silver to be paid, differing depending upon severity. While this legal system was not as complete as that of Hammurabi in the second millennium BCE, it went a long way towards standardizing punishments and bringing all the cities and regions under one code. But nothing lasts forever, and the most controlled ideological states last for very little time at all. The collapse of the Neo-Sumerians was not only inevitable, but happened remarkably quickly. What sparked the decline is not certain, but it appeared that upon the ascension of King Ibi-Sin, the provincial regions began to detach themselves from the central control. Within the first two years of his reign, taxes had ceased from the most distant provinces and outlying cities had stopped dating documents using the official imperial calendar. This was the case across the entire empire by his ninth year. The outlying provinces declared themselves independence, vultures circled, and enemies amassed on the borders. Semitic people in the west, known as Amorites, began raiding the lands along the Euphrates. During times of stability, the western Semites would sometime enter the empire peacefully and in small numbers, but during times of weakness, they came in in numbers and were well armed. They seized patches of territory in the empire's west, and their attacks drove the price of grain up enormously. When the king in Ur asked one of his generals to secure wheat and barley from the north, the general informed him that due to the danger posed by the raiders, he was not going to return the grain to Ur. The final blow came not from the west, but from the east. Once under Sumerian control, the new leaders of Elam had risen and marched in the southern Mesopotamia. Ur fell quickly, and King Ibi-Sin was carted off to Elam and never seen again. The Elamites occupied Ur for seven years before being driven out, but by this time the damage was well and truly done. Sumer fractured into individual city-states, this time ruled largely by Amorite chieftains, or Sumerian warlords. Ur was forsaken, the kingship rescinded, and Sumer would never again reign supreme. So we are heading into the era of old Babylon. Next.
Now the sources for this, the Ancient Semitic Civilizations by Muscati, the Ancient Near East by Cyrus Gordon, Mesopotamia, Assyrians, Sumerians, Babylonian, Dictionaries of Civilization, and the Oxford History of the Biblical World by Coogan. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.